The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, watch out for that squirrel. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 341 with guest Brian Peake, recorded live Tuesday, April 8th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, the NRTV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who asked a 64-bit question and got a 2-bit answer, Carl Franklin! Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin, my co-partner out there, my co-partner. I don't know what you're saying. I don't know what I'm saying either. How are you doing, Richard? I'm good, sir. Richard Campbell, Vancouver. Yes. British Columbia. Yeah. Uh, Richard, uh, you know, things are really cooking in the .NET community. There's so much stuff coming out from Microsoft lately that it's hard to keep up, and that's why we're here. We're here to to separate the wheat from the chaff, as it were. And uh, just make sure that you watch the road when you're driving. That would really help out. Let's just get right into Better Know Framework, shall we? That was a little surreal, wasn't it? You are a little surreal, but I'm okay with that. You know, surreal is good sometimes. Because <laughs> sometimes you just have to say WTF. All right. What do you got for me? Well, uh, I got an email from a friend of the show, Bevan Arps. Oh, yes. And he gave me a couple of suggestions for Better Know Framework. And, you know, when we started Better Know Framework, the whole idea, of course, is to just sort of mention and highlight at a very cursory level some of the things that are in the framework so that you can go research them yourself. Of course, you know, the a few minutes at the top of a show is no place for some deep training. So, um, so that's the whole idea. Now, I have talked about classes and namespaces, but now I think I'm going to start getting into, uh, you know, the, the particulars, the, the methods, some of the, some of the very cool particulars. Interesting. Like, like the string object, for example, which, um, our friend Jay Rocks worked on. Oh, yes. You remember Jay Rocks? I do indeed. And I remember the conversations we had with him about it. It's, it's very interesting to be sitting across from a guy who wrote the class you use constantly. Well, I don't know if he wrote the whole string object, but he worked on it. He did write the string builder, which, yes. um, yeah. 
Love that. Anyway, so so this is uh, I'm going to talk about a couple of methods on the string object, and in particular, now you might know about these, you might not, but that's not the point. Split and join. So split is a method of the string that takes that string and a delimiter takes an array of characters because a delimiter could be more than one character. It could be one character like a comma or a tab or a space, but it could also be more than one character like a carriage return line feed pair. Right. So uh, it takes those two things and it returns all of the uh, segments of that string that are separated by that delimiter into an array. Now, this is a chunk of code we must have written a million times as developers. Oh, sure. Everybody back in the day had to do this kind of stuff yourself. Yeah. Right. So so there it is. Uh, and, and it's great for, you know, taking data that comes in that format and just splitting it out into an array so that you can iterate through it. Join is the opposite of that. It concatenates a specified separator string between each element of a specified string array, yielding a single concatenated string. So... It's sort of the opposite of split, split and join. Cool. So there you go. There's your better know framework for today. Richard, you got an email from a fan? Why, yes, I do. And you may recognize the name. I'll save it for the end, though. Okay. Uh, interestingly enough, the beginning starts out, Hi, Richard. Notice anything missing? <laughs> I just finished listening to show 327 with guest John Goodyear. First of all, I had not heard about the finalizer battle bot. That was really cool. That was cool. Regarding text messaging, I remember hearing an idea for it many years ago that I thought was cool, but it's never really materialized. But after listening to this show, I think we're finally getting closer to it. The scenario is this. I don't know about you, but many times I've been to places such as malls or shopping centers, and then the next day somebody told me about an outrageous special some store there had on something I'd really like to know about since I was right there and missed it. Ah. Well, even though I totally hate spam, I'd totally be in for some kind of service that I could subscribe to where I'd register my interests, say computers, music, etc. And whenever I'm in the mall or within a certain distance from it, I'd like to receive a text message telling me Store X has a great special on Y for those who show up in the next hour and show this text message. Just mm. an idea. Regards, Claudio LaSala from EPS. Yeah, EPS, that's right. That's uh, Code Magazine. Uh, that's right, Marcus Code Magazine, Marcus Egger, and all the fun folks down there. And I was scratching my memory thinking, there is that kind of stuff. I mean, they do that now, don't yeah, they? Yeah, absolutely. And I, it's more of a Bluetooth thing, right? If, remember at, at TechEd, they yeah, did that, where they had, right. if you got in a certain range and you had your Bluetooth discoverability on, you just get stuff? Right. So I, I do think there's some cases for that. Uh, I think it... it so a lot of folks would react to it as invasiveness, mm. but uh, it's an interesting thought. Anyway, I appreciate the email, Claudio, and uh, I'm looking forward to sending you a .NET Rocks bug for your great email, because I'm pretty sure Marcus doesn't have one. And wouldn't that be great if you had one and he didn't? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's all good. We're all about love here. Brotherly oh, yes. love. Uh, we jest. Well, Richard, our, I'm really excited because our guest today is Brian Peak, and uh, we're going to be talking 64-bit. Brian is a Microsoft C-Sharp MVP and a recognized .NET expert with over six years of experience developing .NET solutions and over nine years of professional experience architecting and developing solutions using Microsoft technologies and platforms. Along with .NET and its associated languages, Brian is particularly skilled in the languages of C, C++, and assembly language for a variety of CPUs. 
He's also an expert in a variety of technologies, including web development, document imaging, GIS, that's uh, Geographic Information Services, graphics, game development, and hardware interfacing. Brian has a strong background in developing applications for the healthcare industry, as well as developing solutions for portable devices such as tablet PCs and PDAs. Oh, we haven't talked tablet PCs in a while, huh? Yeah. He's also co-author of the book DebuggingASP.net, published by New Writers, and is currently co-authoring his second book, this time for O'Reilly. Brian's also a member of MSDN's Coding for Fun writing team, contributing articles on a monthly basis. Welcome to .NET Rocks, Brian. Thanks for having me. Oh, glad to be here. Glad you could be here. I'm glad to be here, too. <laughs> if I wasn't here, what I, would we do? I don't know. I'm amazed you were invited. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'd be talking to a wall or something. As a matter of fact. <laughs> oh, it's going to be a silly show. It I can feel it in my show. body. 64-bit is such a silly topic. Such I a mean. lighthearted target. Now, Brian, if I remember correctly, don't you work with John Goodyear? I do, which is a, a crazy bit of irony for today. Yeah, no kidding, seeing how the... Uh, the uh, email I just read from Claudio was uh, all about uh, uh, John's show. It's a coincidence, right. anyway. It is definitely a coincidence. So, uh, so what is your involvement with with sixty four bit computing? I mean, uh, sounds like you're you're pretty deep down into the OS. Um, how how what's your experience in terms of the Windows OS at that level? Um, the only reason why I got into sixty four bit development was because I. You know, decided to upgrade one of my machines to four gigs of RAM, and I actually wanted to see all of it. Yeah. So I had to install Vista 64, and now I'm 64-bit development. So that's 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 how, how it went. There was no other reason other than that. How's Vista 64 working for you? Um, I find it to be silky smooth. I don't know. Yeah, again, you know, I've always found Vista to be pretty pretty silky, but Richard has the same experience. You still run Vista 64, Richard? So, but my Vista 64 came pre-installed on my Dell M90. Hmm. Uh, so I bow down to Brian here because doing a scratch install of Vista X64 means finding signed 64-bit drivers for everything in your machine. And that scares me to death. Well, that's the only reason that I uh, am not running Vista 64. I'm running XP64. And like you, Brian, I wanted 8 gigs of RAM and I wanted to see them all. And, uh, you know, that, that was the driving force behind it. But, um, the audio drivers just weren't there for the stuff that we need. And, you know, that's what we, that's what I use my machine mostly for. Yeah. So I, you know, I have, that's the one thing everyone complains about is, is driver support. And that's the one thing I, or at least for me, I haven't found to be the case. I'm on my, my second machine running X64 and I have found drivers for everything I'm running, signed drivers and, well, my, and it's an important clarification here. It has to be, it's not just enough to have a driver. I mean, it's tough enough Correct. to find a driver. It's got to be a signed driver. That's right. Yeah. And well, the thing for me is that the, the audio devices that we run are 48 inputs and outputs. So sure. Yep. we've got yep. serious, you know, serious hardware here. And, and the drivers, uh, interestingly enough, haven't been updated from Mark of the Unicorn for the 24 IO uh, devices that we have since they came out for Vista. So it, it it's almost like um it's almost like they they feel that the drivers are working fine. Maybe which is, I haven't had any trouble with my Motu drivers. They've been pretty good. You haven't. Um, hmm. Brian, out of curiosity, two machines in a row with total success, what hardware are you buying? Yeah. I don't know. I guess I just buy pretty simple stuff. I mean, I I mean, it's a, you know, Intel chipset based motherboards with uh, Nvidia video cards, Creative Lab Sound Blaster, which you know, as we know, Creative has some issues with drivers all the time, but their X64 driver does does work well. So um, are you scratch building these machines or are you buying them from somebody? 
No, there's their scratch build, you know. Go to Newegg and buy all the parts and slap them together. Okay, well then, you got to be more specific than that. I'm I'm totally comfortable with that. I, I dig yeah, that. Yeah, that's what I did too. Wh- which brand of motherboard? Uh, Asus. Ah, good choice. Always go Asus. I, I've never had anything but an Asus. Actually, I, I'm not sure I had an A-bit motherboard once where a capacitor started melting off of it, which nice. was, was really, really awesome. Nice. I know. I'm an, I'm an Asus fan too, so yep. I'm with you. Uh, what, do you think, what do you think about tie-in motherboards? Um, I've I've read things, good, decent things about them in general, but I've never owned one. Okay, I've I've just always Asus has always worked for me, and I know they're they're you know the top of the line for for expense, but they they've always been a hundred percent stable for me. Always had drivers, always been perfect. As long as we're talking hardware, I've been using the uh, Western Digital Raptor. 150 yep. gig, uh, 15,000 RPM drives for my system drives, mm-hmm. and I've had mixed results. Really, I've I had didn't... I've had them uh, fail in a mirror twice. Okay. Well, and they and they run really hot. I think that's part of the challenge. They do run hot, yeah. And are we starting in the right place here? Do you think that starting with 64-bit development, you've got to have a 64-bit machine? Um. If you want to actually be able to test it and make sure that, that the things that you're doing are going to run, absolutely. I mean, you don't need a 64-bit machine to compile a 64-bit .NET library or executable or whatever else, but you won't actually see it run um, you know, in, a, in, uh, in the 64-bit CLR unless you're running on a 64-bit machine. Right. And I guess that by default, when you compile, you compile to any CPU. So there's both Correct. a 64-bit and a 32-bit version available automatically. Right, it'll run under whatever CLR is appropriate for that machine. Brian, before you get much further, you were going to say something about the Raptor drive. Yeah, I, I had um, in my previous machine, I, I actually just built a new machine this weekend, which is why this is right at the, at the forefront here. Wow. Um, I bought uh, three Raptor drives. I have two of them in a, in a RAID 1, and they're all running happily at the moment, but I did have a Raptor fail as well in my old machine, which I had to, uh, which actually purchased from Newegg, whatever was not under warranty because it's an OEM drive. So I got okay. to uh, just smash that with a hammer, which I guess was fun. But ah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay. Yeah. So so let's talk about um, 64-bit. A couple of technologies I want to talk about, starting with WoW 64. What is that? That's uh, Windows on Windows is what it stands for. Uh, which is basically just a a, uh, a layer that's in the 64-bit editions uh, of Windows XP or 2003 or Vista, whatever X64 version you're running. Um, it basically consists of a bunch of DLLs that are used to thunk from 64-bit to 32-bit. Okay. Excuse me, from 32-bit to 64-bit. It went, went the wrong way there. Um, and basically the idea there is if you're running a 32-bit executable under a 64-bit platform. I mean, the memory model's different. There are very things, various things that are different, but uh, the WoW 64 layer will take and do whatever is required to get that 32-bit executable to run pretty much almost natively with very, very little performance uh, loss in the 64-bit environment. Yeah. Okay. Um, and where that comes into play, I mean, it's generally... Um, you know, it's it's at the, the native level. It's not at the .NET level. Hmm. Um, so it's at the CLR. The, the the you know a standard C or C plus plus executable would be running that way, or the CLR itself would be running that way. But your .NET apps and libraries and whatnot don't really get affected by that because it's kind of a transparent thing to it. But it's one of the reasons that we can just run a 64-bit operating system and and everything seems to work Correct. without consequence because WoW 64 just provides that 32-bit execution layer. Exactly. I mean, you could take any 30-bit EXE, and it's gonna 
run on 64-bit Windows. Now, were there any 64-bit chips? I think maybe the first Intel ones that came out that wouldn't run 32-bit software. Wasn't it AMD that sort of pioneered that? Well, there there were several. I, I believe there were several uh, x64, 64-bit um, uh, uh, instruction sets. Okay. And I think Intel had one. Yeah, I don't know, well, they did the original back. with Itanium. Itanium, right. exactly. Which some people refer to as Itanic. Because <laughs> it sank. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty hard, too. Um, and was that why? Because it was only 64? I, only ran 64-bit? I, I believe that's correct. I, I mean, I've never even seen an Itanium processor. The but... only place I ever used Itanium machines, and this is a number of years ago, was for 64-bit SQL Server. That okay. was just the only place where it made mm-hmm. sense. Hmm. I remember there was a version. I think it was it was it NT four or Windows two thousand that had uh, like an Itanium edition. Yes. So it was Windows two thousand was SQL two thousand Enterprise all the way all sixty four bit was the first time we really had a straightforward large memory model available mm-hmm. for SQL Server. You could do it before that, but you had to jump through wacky hoops. Okay. But the, really, the first time I felt like we could simply buy a total sixty four bit solution and and have big, you know, 16 or 32 gigs of RAM available was the Itanium solution on the 2000s. Well, so so that was the the, the first chip, and then, uh, yeah, you're right, AMD came out with their own separate instruction set, and uh, Intel mostly stole it, as what usually happens in the processor world, mm-hmm. which, which was EMT64. Um, and then those two things kind of got munched together into what is now known as X64. I mean, yeah. it's technically still AMD64, but... Um, it runs on both chips. You know, what do you think, of, speaking of servers, what do you think of Windows Server 2008 as a, and, and this was uh, this was a, a whole string of emails on the RDA alias, um, uh, what do you think about Windows Server 2008 as a desktop machine for developers? And in particular, I'm thinking of the 64-bit edition running uh, virtual PCs or VMware machines, uh, you know, for different things that you want to do. Um. Up until Service Pack 1 for Vista, I was all for it, but with Service Pack 1 bringing the kernels in line from Windows 2008 and Vista, they're coming there, basically the same operating system now. Um, well, and, tell us, ex- explain exactly what you mean by that. Well, uh, if you look at the build numbers for Vista and you look at the build numbers for Windows Server 2008, I mean, Vista was build 6000 and Windows Server 2008 was build 6001. Uh, when Service Pack 1 was released, they basically took Everything that they hadn't finished in Vista and added to Windows 2008, uh, both kernel and applications and every and bug fixes, whatever else, and that was that is what was Service Pack One for Vista. So uh, kernel, system DLLs, uh, and everything else for operating system related are basically the same between those two machines. So they, Vista they, got the kernel from the server product. Correct. Yeah. Um, I mean, they obviously, you know, they still have different functions and different, you know, you can. You know, you're not going to run SQL Server Enterprise on, uh, you know, Vista Ultimate because that would be stupid. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, so, the, so, in my opinion, at this point, there's, I, I, running that as a desktop OS doesn't. Uh, I don't think it, it it buys you anything. Doesn't make any sense, unless you have driver issues, right? Which is the the deal with Vista. Yeah, but I mean, it, I think you're going to be in the same boat either way because the drivers that are Vista X64 are going to be, we're going to work under Windows 2008. Except X64 for the video stuff, which is different in Vista, the arrow and all of that stuff that's not on the server. Well, you can turn all that on. It's just off. It's not removed or anything. It's Windows just 2008 has all that eye candy too? It sure does. Really? Yep. 
you can go in and turn on the desktop window manager and uh, turn on uh, Arrow Glass if you if you really want to. If you really want to. Yep. Hmm. hmm. What do you think about that, Richard? I know you we were pretty silent on that whole conversation. I'm not going to tell anybody what we were talking about, but <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I'm I'm with you. I I think that Server 2008 is such a nice operating system to work in. I was having this conversation just yesterday, uh, where so many people struggled so hard with Vista. Uh, it's going, I think the biggest reason we're seeing a lot more stability, uh, folks are so happy with 2008 is that the hardware they're running it on tends not to be quite so leading edge. And, and I'm specifically thinking around video drivers that, and we just saw the stats recently here where they said 30% of the Vista problems were NVIDIA video drivers. True. Mm-hmm. Well, most servers don't run NVIDIA video cards. True. Right, they run on the motherboard, IBM chipset, like pretty stuff that you would, and you're perfectly happy to run the Microsoft certified driver for that. Where if you spend five hundred dollars on a video card, you want the driver that'll exploit the heck out of it, and that driver is probably not as stable. And have the NVIDIA video drivers finally come around for Vista? Because I remember they were taking their sweet time for a while there. Well, and they they did ship them, and I noticed I just updated maybe about a month ago my. Uh, NVIDIA drivers for my M90, and the latest driver that went in there took away a twitch that I had from the very beginning of the machine, where on boot up or something, the screen would do a little leap every so often. Very disconcerting. That's now gone with the latest driver update. Wow. Interesting. No, well, I mean, you can also, I mean, if you, I mean, on Vista, you can certainly turn off all the eye candy and make it look like Windows Server 2008, so... You can also no. turn off some background services, which and there was another thing that people complained about. It was just do, trying to do too much in the background a lot. Absolutely. And there are ways that there are services that you can turn off so that it's not thinking so much all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, when Vista starts up, it's running Windows Search and Superfetch and ReadyBoost and, you know, 10 billion other services that are all pulling the hard drive simultaneously. Right, so right. it takes about 10, machines for the, 10 minutes for the machine to settle down before you can start using it a lot of times. Do you do you turn that stuff on? Do you have it on? I turn off some of it. Um, like like what? Ready Boost. Well, Ready Boost. I'm not using a USB flash drive for extra RAM, so that gets immediately turned off. Uh, um, Super Fetch I generally leave on, and Windows Search I leave on just because I like really fast email searches in Outlook, and I can't get that any other way. Okay. Um, well, I suppose I can, but not without third-party software or something like that. Um, I always turn off the Security Center because it really, really annoys me. That's the whole, uh, are you sure you want to do this stuff? Well, that's, that's user access control. User the, the, access the control. security center is the, is the shield in the lower right corner that says, hey, your firewall is off. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Great, my firewall's off for a reason. Leave me alone. Right. I know <laughs> what I'm doing. Shut up. Yeah, exactly. Um, Where is the setting that tells the operating system I'm not an idiot? See, that's, that's what I have always wanted in, in any operating <laughs> system is I want, I want an install screen at the beginning that says, you know, what, what's, what's your user level? What's your are skill you? level? <laughs> exactly, and you choose it, and it just turns off all these things that, you know, because, I mean, you know, for my mom and dad, you know, I want them to have a machine that is very, is brain-dead yeah, and they don't have to do anything. So the lowest setting is, protect me, I'm afraid, and the highest setting is, yes, the gun is pointed at my head, and I'm comfortable with that. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. It turns off half the services, turns off all the stuff, makes sure yeah. that, you know, the highest eye candy is available and whatever else, and... Okay, so let's get back to 64-bit development anyway. Yes. Which I'm really glad we had this conversation to start, though, because, uh, you know, these are things that we all think about 
and we all yeah, have to it, deal with. You've got to set your platform right here. Let's get this machine running right, and then we can start thinking about the rest. And I think to the to that point, you can't ship 64-bit software if you can't test 64-bit software, and that starts with the development machine. So the first yeah. question is, you know, what kind of applications are best suited for 64-bit? You know, now I now I I can I can hear the little voice in the listener's head that hey, I wonder if I should compile my stuff that I'm working on is 64-bit. So I mean, obviously, when you need more memory, right? When you need more, when you have lots of big files that are huge that uh, that you're working with, obviously the applications like SQL Server, um, video and audio processing. Any, anything that's going to use a lot of RAM or a lot of disk space is an obvious thing. But are there any other kind of applications or, or things that are intensive in any one area that might uh, be a red flag for a 64-bit compile? I think you you hit on the on the on the on the two big things. I mean, the the, the obvious advantage of 64-bit is you can now address 64 bits of address space. Um, although technically, the, I think the highest that any CPU or actually does is 48 bits, but um, I mean, the, the the point is, that, you know, if you need more, if you need to be access more than four gigs of RAM for something, then you want to be in the 64-bit world so you can, and that's why right. you know it makes sense for SQL Server, where you might have you know huge databases that require uh, a lot more space. Um, well, and I, and I think it's important in the 32-bit context to realize that just because we can, in theory, have four gigs of RAM. You don't get to see it all, and I think lots of folks know that. You get three and a half or 3.2. Depending on your video card, too. But when exactly. you actually bear down on what is the space that .NET gets to work in after the operating system's taken off its chunk and so forth, it's a gig? For any executable that runs, I believe you know, the instant it starts, it's given a, a four gigabyte virtual address space. Right. Virtual address. Right. So, I mean, you're not actually using, you know, all four gigs on the machine at once at the instant it starts up, but it has access to a full four gigs of address space, whether that be swap or RAM or whatever else. Well, and in a 32-bit environment, at, at least some of that is swap, at sure. least half. Yep. You know, let's talk about swap files for a minute, because we, we did address this with, uh, I think, Brian Randall a while ago. Um, if you've got 16 gigs of RAM on your machine, you're running a 64-bit operating system. How important is the swap file? And you can obviously you have control over it, where you can reduce the size of it. And I've seen people actually turn it off so that yep. they, you know, they there's no disk swapping going on, and what you get is just what's in RAM. And when RAM runs out, okay, you're out of memory. You can certainly do that. I mean, the, the, the swap file only really, well, it does kick in in, in other cases, but I mean, it, 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 its point is when you, when you are nearing the edge of your physical RAM, I mean, it's going to write stuff to the swap file so right. it can, uh, you know, swap the RAM pages in and out. And if you shut it off, it is going to fail. You're, you're going to get an out of memory error. Sure. Sure. Yeah. If, if you, if you hit that actual edge, uh, it will. But it, but it uses the, I mean, when you say allow Windows to, you know, manage your swap file, it uses the swap file no matter how much RAM you're using, doesn't it? Um, it does. It does. It will still throw things in RAM, uh, or excuse me, in in, in the in the in the in the page file. Right. Even though you have, uh, even though you have RAM available. Correct. And I don't know what the rules are for that. I don't know what, when it decides that something needs to be uh, paged out to disk, but yeah. it certainly does happen. Yeah. But I would point out that. If you run yourself out of memory to the point where the swap file is in use, the only reason that you don't get an out of memory error is that you usually kill the process because it's running so slowly. That's right. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I would say I would say that 
for for a desktop developer to have the killer 64-bit machine running Vista or XP or whatever it is. You know, you get as much RAM as you can. Try to get that swap file down in size so that it's not being utilized just during the normal operation, even when you do have a lot of RAM, and just watch your RAM, right? Sure. You know? Hey, man, you can, there, there is certainly nothing, uh, no harm in turning it off as long as you uh, don't hit that upper boundary. Yeah. Well, and this is back to being comfortable with the gun pointed at your head. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. See, that, 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 should, that should be the one, one of the settings for that uh, advanced level of uh, Vista install. Well, it'll only, <laughs> probably only take one out-of-memory area to say, okay, i got to turn that back on. Now. Uh-huh. I, I, I don't know that that's true. I think it saves time trying to chase around why is this suddenly brutally slow. Oh, look, my drive is pounding. True. Mm-hmm. That's what's actually going on. True. So... um applications that you develop, let's say you're developing a 64-bit application and you have some third-party tools that only work in 32-bit. Mm-hmm. Does the Windows on Windows 64 protect you there? Does it Does it do the automatic thunking or what's the story with that? Like, can you load a 32-bit DLL in a 64-bit process? Do you have to do some magic there? What's the story? You cannot load a 32-bit uh, DLL in a 64-bit process, no matter if it's .NET or native or anything else, at least on the Windows side. So you really um, have to have two processes, and if it's something like a control that has to be in process, are you SOL? Yes, absolutely. You either, either you have to force a compile to 32-bit only, or you find a 64-bit version from some other uh, component vendor. Um, I, I got to think the big whammy here is p-invoking to com. Yes, that, that that I mean that's that's the the ultimate reason is is because you know, is P invoke is drastically different on X sixty four versus well I shouldn't say drastically but there are there are some big changes and COM is thirty two bit only right so COM Correct. components won't load in process right so uh, I, where where this has bitten me is there are several third party um, DLLs that I that I use uh, and they are set in .NET to compile as x86 only because they're talking to COM or the Win32 API under the hood. Um, and maybe there are only, you know, 32-bit versions of those things. So uh, Manage DirectX is a big one. Not that anybody uses that anymore because XNA has kind of taken over. Um, Microsoft Robotics Studio, there are a couple things in that which use Manage DirectX internally, which no longer work. Now, um, let's talk about that for a second. Manage mm-hmm. DirectX, meaning... Uh, a .NET wrapper around DirectX. You're saying people just use XNA now? Well, Managed DirectX was kind of the, the predecessor to what is now XNA. It was uh, kind of a very thin wrapper around the original DirectX APIs for you know controller input, video, audio, etc. Um, it hasn't been updated in, I don't know, I think it's, it's over a year now, but there are still things in Managed DirectX that don't exist in XNA. I really Mainly thought I didn't know XNA was that deep. I thought XNA used DirectX. No, it's it's kind of become the replacement now. I mean, the only thing that that you can't do that I know of. I mean, I'm sure there are other things, but um, if you want to use Direct Show or talk to webcams and stuff, which you can do through DirectX, that stuff doesn't exist in XNA right now. Um, but, but if there's, you're there's a full audio stack, you're saying? Um, mostly full. It has it uses uh, the exact programming library, which actually started life on the Xbox 360 um, for audio. You don't don't have total audio control, so again, that's another place where you might want to use Managed DirectX. Do you know the perfect formula for building and managing websites? Follow me here. Zero effort plus Sitefinity CMS 
equals infinity in website development. That's right. Telerik challenges you to explore its innovative Sitefinity content management system and offers you a chance to win a sleek Zune MP3 player or a Sitefinity license. These cool awards could be yours if you only answer a few easy questions about Telerik's Sitefinity CMS. All you have to do is watch five short movies and see how easy it is to build infinitely beautiful websites with zero effort. You'll learn some cool facts about Sitefinity and the effortless creation of websites. So go to www.sitefinity.com and give it a try. It's fun, it's interesting, and it can get you a free license or a free Zune. But, I, you know, I've always thought of XNA as something for the Xbox, which you've sort of referred to there. Uh, so I'm, I'm a little surprised to hear this context of talking about XNA as an alternative to things you would do on the PC. Yeah, I mean, XNA is, has full 100% support on the PC. I mean, you can, you know, whatever you compile using XNA, well, you can take to the Xbox 360 and with basically no code change, run it there. I mean, it's... And, um, and of course, and which is really compelling all by itself, but then it's interesting to hear the idea that it's replacing the, the DirectX libraries for .NET on the PC. It's just the XNA seems to be the way to go. Yeah, I mean, as far as I know, managed DirectX at this point is deprecated. They, it has not been updated in a very long time, and if you want to use some of the newer DirectX features, it's, you know, go use XNA because it's it's being supported there. It's not being supported in the old managed DirectX libraries. So, and wow. one of the things that Microsoft told us in when Vista was coming along is the the end of that bonk when games ran on your PC because you went into a different video mode that you would always be running in Windows, and I guess this is it, XNA. That's what that's what they're going for. I mean, they're looking for cross-platform game development for Xbox 360 and the PC. And so to get back to your original comment, XNA does support 64-bit, whereas Managed DirectX, since it's, you know... No, it does not. Does not. But it works a lot better than Managed DirectX. Okay, wait a minute. So <laughs> XN, XNA is not 64-bit? XNA is only if it only can come, ships with 32-bit assembly, so you still need to compile your executable as x86. but Everything works. Okay. Whereas, okay, let's let's try to let's try to come up with a good way to explain this. Um, the managed DirectX assemblies aren't marked as x86 only; they're marked any CPU, which means they'll run under whatever. In theory, they'll run under 64-bit. Correct. However, I have hit numerous things where. You know, I go to open a webcam or I go to do something and it throws a memory exception at me. But you just said that you can't open a 32-bit DLL right, well, in a 64-bit process. Are no, you I'm t- saying if, you, if, we, if we had a 64-bit executable and we're running the, you, you, you load the any CPU build of Microsoft DirectX, which is the only one that's out there. Okay. Um, it would try and load it in the 64-bit environment and it would fail. No, it's, it still runs. Oh. I'm saying that oh. there are specific... There are specific methods that I have called that have thrown up at me. Ah, okay. So, really, bugs. Yeah, I should not so. have been marked as any CPU if there's pieces of it that won't run on 64-bit. But is it supposedly compiled as a 64-bit DLL? Well, it's compiled as any CPU, so it'll run under whatever host process you give it. Okay, I don't know the, I don't know the difference. Okay, um... Well, if there are there are basically three build types out of the box with Visual Studio and a standard C sharp compiler. You've got any CPU, X sixty four, and X eighty six. 
I think it's called IA64. So any any CPU does some thunking it, or something? Any CPU, it just marks the executable or the DLL as saying whatever pro, whatever the host process is is whatever whatever the bit level of my host process is is how I will run. So it has two builds. I don't understand how. I don't understand how just a marking is going to allow it to load up into a 64-bit process. Okay. Well, if you let's so if you're, if you're marked as any CPU and you and you start that executable, um, if that executable is a 64-bit executable compiled as 64 or marked as 64, anything that loads underneath it has to be marked as any CPU or x64 specific. Okay. So it's really only just a um, a bit yeah. somewhere that that it tells that's the reason why 32-bit DLLs won't load up in a 64-bit process. If they were marked as any CPU, they could load up. But once you went to call them, if you're if you're accessing more than 32 bits of memory, you're going to screw up. Is that how it works? Well, if you're accessing things in a in a way that's not compatible with x64, it will screw up. And I think that's the problem with certain parts of managed DirectX. Is you know it's 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 built as any CPU, but they they might be calling some Win32 API or DirectX API incorrectly, so that it would run on the 32-bit platform just fine, but on the 64-bit platform, you know you're you're passing the wrong size of a pointer, or the address that you're pointing to is not is not the correct one because it's you know a different memory model or something like that. Hey, and I think what you're you're walking towards here is what it actually the difference is between an app that's running in th- that's uh, compiled for 32-bit and one that's compiled for 64-bit. I mean, I haven't changed my code. I've just changed compilation. What's different? The, the, there, if, you, if you compare a 64-bit build and a 32-bit build and a any CPU build of a .NET assembly, they are, they are basically identical except for two flags. Really? And anyway, so, I mean, there there is a, you know, I don't know, a, a two-bit difference if the flags are, are one bit each. I don't know if they're true-false or whatever they happen to be. Right. But, um, that's all that's different. I mean, I mean, everything in .NET is compiled down to IL, and IL is universal no matter what your bitness or platform or anything else is. But it's when you go to access a... Well, okay, so the the compiler will take care of the, the you know, the difference in long longs versus ints or anything like that in 64 and 32. Well... Right? If you're in managed code, yes. Yeah, in managed code. Yes. But it's that moment of when it actually goes to execute it, when it jits it, that now you're in trouble. Correct. Okay. When it jits it, it's going to be, when you, if you're on Vista X64 and you double click an EXE, it's going to load it as a 64-bit processor. It's going to try to. And if it's right. not a 64-bit executable, it's then going to dumb down to a 32-bit. The wow stuff. But now stuff wow, like exactly. along is now 64 bits. One of the things I've read is that when it goes to run in 64-bit, that exact same program is going to consume more memory because it's eating 64 bits per long instead of 32 bits per long. It depends on, on, what, on, on what that executable is. Okay. Um, in what sense? Well, in, in .NET, if you're talking about .NET, um, all, the, all the sizes are the same, no matter if you're on 32-bit or 64-bit. An int is 32 bits, a long is 64 bits, always. Okay. Um, if you're talking about native code, um, it depends on your on your compiler and what what you're doing, but generally, Microsoft has adopted the philosophy that an int is 32 and a long and uh, a long is either 32 if you're on a 32-bit platform or 64 if you're on a 64-bit platform. Okay. Um, 
So, <clears throat> yes, you might be consuming more memory if uh, if you're running native stuff, but in, in .NET, it's really going to be the same. It's oh, that's interesting. So you know, they they lots of discussion around this increased memory consumption, but then saying, well, that's okay because we now have more memory available. But .NET doesn't do that. It should no. I mean, it, once once it goes, you know, under the hood to this to the to the CLR, and you know, once the CLR is you know doing some native things, it might expand it. But right. in terms of just .NET itself, those sizes remain the same no matter what platform and no matter what business you're on. So and and so back to the original point here, which is where you get these errors. If all this code was underlying was .NET, we wouldn't have these problems. Correct. The issue Absolutely. is that we're calling to native 32-bit DLLs, and they doesn't work. Correct. All right. I mean, but what, what the, if to get technical, I mean, the the actual issue here is that the size of a pointer is different. Right. Okay. That's the usual problem we run into. Right. I mean, in 32-bit, you're, you're anything that's that's declared as as a star, you know, in C or C plus plus is 32 bits, and in X64, that that uh, in star, void star is now 64 bits. So the XNA stuff, even though it might be 32-bit internally since it's managed, is going to load in a 64-bit process and work. Is no. that what you're saying? It is 32-bit all the way. XNA is 32-bit all the way. It's tested on 32-bit all the way. It's not native. It's just marked as being 32-bit only. Okay, right. so it still Where? doesn't work. So why did you say that it all works if it doesn't work? No, it does work. <laughs> what I'm, I'm still is, confused. <laughs> all right, all right. Let's see. XNA is has has its all of its assemblies marked as 32-bit only, which means which means that right we, at the beginning it's going to catch it and say there's no way you can run this 64-bit. Correct. So if you're if you're building an EXE that's going to call uh, XNA, you need to mark your EXE as 32-bit only. Otherwise, you can't call the XNA DLLs. Right. All right. Now, this is different from Managed DirectX, which is marked as any CPU. Any CPU. But it doesn't work in 64-bit either. It mostly works, but I have found numerous places where it just coughs and explodes for no reason. Exactly. Right. So is there any hope for XNA 64-bit? They have mentioned it in passing, but I I don't know if it's is there any reason be a for it. Is there any See, that's, reason that's, for it? That's the whole thing. I'm not sure. I mean... Well, the only reason I could imagine is the next Xbox. Perhaps. Or how about a how about video and audio processing software that wants to be 64? I mean, I'm I'm thinking of Vegas, right? Sony Vegas, which by the way has components of .net and I'm not sure if it's 64-bit or not, but um if it has a 64-bit version, but it certainly should. I <laughs> mean, you're dealing with large files and and lots of RAM. But can't we, I mean, you don't have to use XNA either. You could be doing this with, say, WPF. I mean, XMA is really about that sort of video rendering ability, Yeah, I mean, right? XNA is, is about talking to your video and audio and, well, right. audio not, not so much, but definitely video hardware and controllers and things like that in a very low-level way. But I can way. get to my video hardware through WPF, so sure, you're not don't have, nearly have to as use much XNA. Here. No, you're, just, you're not going to have nearly as much control. Yeah, or performance. Right. Exactly. Um, hmm. I mean, XNA in a 64-bit world, I suppose, I mean, at, at the moment, I don't think it makes very much sense, but... Um, now, I, I think I'm right that when the next Xbox comes along, you got to know it'll be 64-bit architecture because everything else is, and that will be the driving force behind building 64-bit uh, tools to develop with it. Right. 
Okay, so third-party tools, if they're 32-bit and you're running 64-bit, you're out of luck. Unless they're managed code and they're either built for 64-bit or they're built to run on any CPU. And you're saying that watch out for those any CPU builds because there still could be some issues. Yeah, it really depends on how well the original developer tested it and wrote it. So now let's talk about P-Invoke Okay. on X64. Um, most people, when I think P-Invoke, I think the Windows API. Mm-hmm. So uh, can you call into the 32-bit Windows API with P-Invoke? I would say no because you'd have to load those DL- 32-bit DLLs in memory. But there right. are 64-bit versions of those on a 64-bit OS, right? Correct. Correct. Exactly. So if you're calling into the Win API, I mean, basically everything that exists on the Win32 side exists on the, I guess, Win64 side, we'll call it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's actually the name of it or not, but um, that's why if you ever if you're on a 64-bit machine, you can if you go into the Windows directory, you'll see uh, I think it's SysWow64 is the name of the directory, mm-hmm. which contains what are basically the 32-bit versions of all the DLLs that um, that are part of the operating system. Yeah, SysWow64. So you've got you know you've got your standard System32 directory, which contains the 64-bit versions of every Windows DLL ever. And then if you go into the SysWow64 directory, you have what are the 32-bit versions. Okay. So if you're running a 64-bit application and you're p-invoking to a Win32 API, it's going to you know, call the 64-bit version of it that's in your native System32 directory, or if you're running a 32-bit marked executable and you t-invoke, it's going to call everything that's in the SysWow64 directory. Okay. Um, and the other thing where this, the, the other place where this creeps up is uh, is the registry. There are on a 64-bit machine under Windows, there are two registries. Um, Interesting. Yes. Um, so if you go into HKey local machine. You'll find that there, you know, you got your standard, you know, current control set and uh, system software, but there's also a, I think it's again called SysWow64, which contains a 32-bit version of the registry. So any 32-bit apps that are going to write or read the registry are going to write to this special sub-key under HKey Local Machine. That's basically for 32-bit apps only. And anything that's 64-bit is going to write to the uh, higher-level native registry for that machine. That, you know, that makes me now feel like any CPU is evil. It's really because, not. Because if I run in 64-bit, I'm going to write in one place in the registry, and if I run in 32-bit, I'm going to write in a different place in the registry. Um, well, see, it, 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 well, yes and no, because to the, to the application, it's seamless. The application doesn't realize that there are two different registries. Right. And, of course, on a given machine where that registry lies, it's only ever going to run in one or the other. Correct. Presumably, I can't imagine why it would do anything else. Right. No. I mean, you generally, if you have a any CPU build, it's always going to run as sixty four. You'd have to force it hard to run as a thirty two bit application. Right. Yeah. If you're running in a sixty four bit environment and you've compiled it as any CPU, it's always going to run in sixty four bit. So it's always going to write a sixty four bit version of the registry. Correct. So. Yeah, okay. What's the? I, I can understand why we ended up with multiple registries, just because I can imagine that things like pointers and, and, and memory blocks and things are different when you're in 64-bit. Right. What's this, what do we have to watch out for? Um, the only thing to watch out for is just to just be aware of the fact that there are technically two registries on your 64-bit machine. So, you know, when you go to write, um, 
And, and, and this is basically for, for debugging. I mean, when, when you go to write something to the registry and you go to look for it, right. make, sure you're, make sure you're looking in the right one, because you might not see it there and you realize, oh, well, it's actually written in the other, other registry because I'm under the other platform type. Right, or if you're you know, putting out a reg file, not that I recommend that, but folks do this, you better make sure you do it the right way for a 64-bit. It's different. Um, yes, yeah. If you wanted to, for whatever reason, from 64-bit right into the 32-bit version, you'd have to pad the registry stuff differently in a reg file. I don't know why you'd want to do that, but... Yeah, it, would, it sounds like a really evil way to interoperate, actually. It does, it does. Um, I, don't know, I don't know if there's any other, uh, any other good ways to handle it, unfortunately, but... Um, that they, 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 everything runs seamlessly, which is what they were after, and it really does. It really does work. So for the most, I mean, we've talked about a few whammies here, a couple mm-hmm. of problems here and there. I think there was a big element of just trying to get a good OS up and running, but for the most part, it's pretty straightforward to operate in 64-bit. If you're doing standard .NET development, you wouldn't know the difference. There's so why really- isn't everybody doing it? Go ahead. I'm sorry. So why isn't everybody doing it? Nobody, well, I think not everybody needs to. I don't think. I don't think. I, I don't think a lot of people need to. I mean, I don't think that there is a huge reason to be running sixty-four bit applications. I mean, I. I mean, I think. I mean, in general, if you're running a sixty-four bit OS, you want sixty-four bit applications because they're going to perform a little better because you know you know you're not dealing with the WoW layer and you know you're running at native sizes and whatnot, but. In terms of average, ordinary, everyday applications, running them in 64-bit versus 32-bit, I mean, I don't think Word 64 is going to is going to be any better than you know the current Word we have now. I don't think Word 64 is going to exist. Probably no, not. A, the no. whole thing was built with COM. Like it's yeah, a total rewrite to make a 64-bit version. I, I agree entirely. I think that then I think there's there's a lot of applications that are old and crusty. They're running a lot of yeah. You know, but I also think that. We're not just talking about 64-bit on the desktop here. We're talking about 64-bit servers, and those are very prevalent. Yes, and I, and I think that there are definitely reasons why you would want to run 64-bit apps on a server. I mean, obviously, they're going to scale better. They're going to have access to more memory. They're going to be able to, you know, uh, have larger files, and uh, definitely a need there. But for your average, ordinary, everyday, you know, data-in, data-out application on a, on a desktop PC, I, don't, I see no reason. So the big angle then here, uh, the one the one we're laying here, if we're going to talk about the main reason that 64-bit is advantageous is when we're running on servers, then ASP.NET has got to be the big one because those are server apps. Yes. I mean, there is a, a you know, a 64-bit IIS and 64-bit uh, .NET, obviously, so it's all going to, uh, to run happily. But as I said, I mean, if you're... If you're running standard, if you're writing standard .NET code and you're not doing anything unsafe or you're not p-invoking anywhere, setting your build type to any CPU eliminates you having to think about anything. Right. It just so happens. It just including happens. even running 30, 64-bit on your development machine. Correct. Exactly, because it's, it's always going to run as the 32-bit version of it. But um, if you took it to a 64-bit machine, it's immediately going to run as the 64-bit version. Provided you don't have any non-managed code involved in your app. Or COM or 32-bit in general. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. So that, and I, I think that's a, that's a pretty big statement to make because there's, that 32-bit stuff sneaks in there. We forget. Uh, absolutely it does, yeah. Uh, and to the point where even Microsoft occasionally sticks a managed wrapper over top of a bunch of 32-bit native DLLs and may or may not have marked it correctly. Yes, in the case of managed DirectX, absolutely. 
And I think that's probably the biggest case you could make for why you want to run 64-bit on your desktop so that you at least can test the 64-bit execution of your app. Oh, yeah. I mean, I... I there, I wonder how much stuff I've written in the past is actually you know marked as any CPU actually works under X64. Yeah, I I mean I guess the rule ought to be mark it as 32 until you've really tested it in 64. Right. If you're doing if you're doing unmanaged things like that, absolutely. Um. Though I mean I've got to say I mean for 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 all the things that I've done under X64, you know I've done the the Wiimote library, Robotic Studio, XNA, I mean, a lot of weird stuff because I write for coding for fun. They're always having me doing weird new technologies. There, there have been very few things that either haven't worked or have just outright failed in X64. And really the biggest one was Managed DirectX. I spent, you know, about a day trying to figure out why this thing was throwing an access, access exception at me, and it was because, for whatever reason, that method I was calling didn't work under X64. Marked it as X86, and it ran fine. That's cool, huh. and and it sounds like you've done some wacky things with Robotics Studio and and XNA. A few things here and there, yeah. It, uh, uh, go ahead. I no, dare I you. Say, no, I mean it's it's. Uh, <laughs> they are interesting technologies. I, I I think they are. They both have their merits in certain places. <laughs> well, it is. You know, most of us code for work. What does it really mean to code for fun? Um, Don't you know, Richard? <laughs> no, not recently. It means it means having uh, enough of a non-life to actually sit down and code when you get home from work. <laughs> I, hey, so I think it's what, it's what it means to be. Yeah, that's 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 what it is. Or if you're unemployed, you know, then you're or, coding yeah, exactly. for fun. But I mean, there are there are there are plenty of things that uh, I think are fun in coding, but probably not everyone would. So. Tell us your favorite fun app. My favorite fun app. Uh, I don't know. Probably all the Wiimote stuff is what, is what I've enjoyed the most. Okay. Now, now you've opened up a can of worms. Let's start with a definition and then tell us the story. And definition what's that all of Wiimote? Yeah. Uh, that is the, uh, well, the, there's the Nintendo Wii game console, which no one can still buy at any store ever. Um, <laughs> And then there's the, the controller for that, which is the little rectangular, looks like a TV remote control, which is technically known as the Wii Remote, which everyone calls the Wiimote, because everyone wants to talk like Elmer Fudd. And <laughs> it's, uh, it's you know, you, you can buy, you can certainly buy them without a, a Wii, which is kind of the cool part. You can go into any electronics store and find it for 40 bucks. It's got a three-axis accelerometer, a bunch of buttons, a speaker, LEDs, uh, an IR sensor, so it can sense... Uh, position in space and it has an expansion port where you can plug in other controllers like the uh the Wii Nunchuck and the Guitar Hero controller and various other things and what's super cool about it is that it is a almost standard bluetooth device so you can hook it up to any bluetooth adapter and I've written a library which allows you to talk to that remote using .net so you awesome. can uh do all sorts of cool stuff i mean the, the coolest is probably everyone knows is uh Johnny Chung Lee's stuff, who has done, uh, basically used the Wiimote in reverse by putting the Wiimote on the television and putting IR sensors on your face or on your hands in order to manipulate stuff on the screen. Just the backwards intention of how it's supposed to be used, but still super cool. That is very cool. So what have you, what have you done with it? What have I done with it? Personally, I did uh, a Wiimote-controlled car, so you can... Uh, 
use the uh, accelerometers to, the, uh, to drive a remote control car around, which is kind of neat. Um, I did a virtual Earth interface, so you can play virtual Earth like a first-person shooter, the virtual Earth 3D from Microsoft. <laughs> That's you got the awesome. Fly around virtual Earth. Yeah, exactly. You've got like, the nunchuck in your left hand, which has got the little joystick nub on it, which you use to move your character, as it were, and then use the Wiimote to basically aim up, down, left, and right. So you can, you know, literally drive through a city or fly over a city or however else you want to do it um, in a first-person way. That's awesome. Which I think is neat. I don't know. Um, I like to drive down, drive through Las Vegas because I don't get out there nearly enough. But um, <laughs> kind of fun, smash into buildings and things. Um, Fly right through them. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's been handfuls of stuff here and there that I've you know tried or haven't finished or just messed around with. But it's it's for for forty dollars, you get a ton of hardware in that little package. Cool. It is, an imp- and arguably the best part of the Wii is that that remote. Yeah. And actually, I mean, that, that Wii remote library that I've written is all, most of it, I won't say all of it, but 90% of it is P-invoked down to um, the HID layer in Windows, which is used for USB and Bluetooth devices. It's a common way to talk to them. It's the human interface All right, I was just going to ask layer. that. How does it appear to Windows? It's a Bluetooth device? Well, it's, 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 a, it's a standard, almost standard Bluetooth device. It doesn't... Okay. Doesn't exactly follow all the Bluetooth specs because of the so that all that infrared stuff that's in the Wii that doesn't use that in this application. Well, no, it it does. What I mean when you when you when you pair it to your PC, right? Um, you basically enumerate through all the HID device. It, it'll it'll install as a Bluetooth HID device, human interface okay. device, uh, which is just a generic profile for Bluetooth items. Um, but the infrared receiver bar that normally sits on your TV, do you need that? Well, that's, that doesn't do it. All that has in it are, are LEDs. It doesn't send or receive any data. Oh, really? I see. Okay. Yes. It, it works the opposite of how everyone thinks it does. All that, it's all not that, a receiver. It's a transmitter. Exactly. All it does is shine oh. a bunch of LED, IR LEDs on either side of it out to the Wiimote to read. Right. And there was, so the Wiimote has all the brains, and it's sending it via Bluetooth Correct. to its receiving source, which is either a Wii or, in this case, a PC. So that's how Correct. it knows where it is in space, is from those L- the position of those LEDs? Right. Basically, I mean, if you, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you run my little test app in my Wiimote library, there is, uh, I, I show you on the screen where it sees those points. And so you can tell, you know, if the thing is tilted or turned and, by pretty, and almost how, how much because of where those dots are uh, in, on the infrared camera. And you can tell how close or far away it is by how close or far away the dots are. Oh, those guys at Nintendo are so smart. They are way smarter than any of us. <laughs> now, did you already tell us, and I'm sorry if I can't remember, but did you already tell us how it interfaces with the PC? Okay, well, it's Bluetooth, and so you've got the, the Bluetooth HID device. So basically, in what you need to do is enumerate through all the HID devices on the machine, find the vendor ID and product ID for the Nintendo Wiimote, Okay. And then you basically open native read and write file handles to it. Oh. And it will send as long as you know you've uh, you, you can set it up to report data in different ways. Like if you want just the buttons or you want the accelerometers and the buttons and the IR or whatever combination you want. And then um, if you want it continuous or only if the position has changed since the last time it read. That is cool. And so basically, what can you I mean, send to the Wiimote? Well, you can send uh, information to set that report type. You can turn on or off the LEDs. You can send data to the speaker. 
Um, you can turn the rumble on or off. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, it's I mean, it's a very low level protocol where I mean, it's just sending a stream of bytes back and forth. Still very um, cool. I mean, the things that you can do. Wow. Yeah, and all that is .NET talking to uh, native code using pinvoke, and there were there were a couple places there where I found that I had to do some magic in order to make uh, some of those pinvoke calls work under x64. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Right back to the original problem, but you, yeah. you, there is ways to make this work under X sixty four. It works. It's a, it's marked as any CPU. It will work under X sixty four or X thirty two or X eighty six without a problem. It runs natively under whatever. Uh, so whatever. Does this just mean that it's a well behaved uh, uh, underlying layer, or did you actually have to do special tricks in your code to make sure that when you called it, you didn't break anything? Um, it was mostly me having to make sure that I, you know. It, the the the, the, big, the overall problem with calling man or uh, native stuff is you have to make sure that you're passing your pointers is the right size for each platform. Right. Um, so there are a couple spots you know where you have to create this Win32 struct and fill it in and send the size of the struct off to a to a method, and that size of is going to be different based on which platform you're right. on. So um, it's a matter of making sure that you send the right size of that struct depending on which platform you are. And the easiest way to tell a platform you are is there's a a little object called int pointer, I-N-T-P-T-R. Right. And if you do int pointer.size, that'll return to you the length of what, it, of what a pointer is on whatever platform you're on. It'll either be four or eight, generally. Yeah, I think that's better than trying to enumerate the operating systems because we've all run into those applications where you're running a newer operating system from when the software was built. Yep. And it's not in the list, and it says, oh, no, you must be running Windows to use this app. Exactly. Yeah, love that. Yeah, that's you're great. Running- you're on an ancient installer that says you must be using Windows 2000 or greater. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh-huh. <laughs> Let me tell you how much greater I'm talking exactly. about. Exactly. We're yeah. 10 years in the future, sir. Yeah. I saw, I think that in pointer.size, that's a great way to tell what platform you're on. Yep. All right, man. Well, uh, we're just about out of time here. So are there any uh, resources you can point us to? I mean, you did give us some that we have linked on the show page. Okay. Uh, yeah. Your blog. Yeah, my blog, I've got a, a, a one part of, of N post. I never actually wrote anymore because I'm lazy. But I was uh, talking <laughs> about some, uh, some X64 goodness, which I will uh, probably pick back up now that uh, there seems to be a little more interest here. Cool. But uh, there's there. And, I mean, there, there's uh, several MSDN articles as well, which I can pass links along as well of uh, easy ways to migrate code from X86 to X64 and things to look out for. Excellent. Our guest has been Brian Peak, brianpeak.com slash blog. Brian, thank you very much for sharing uh, today. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hope Excellent. it was helpful. It was great. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklin's.com. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com.
Transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a toy boy. Life is hard.